HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're getting semantic to understand the deeper meaning behind some of the foods we love. First, we'll look at the big debate happening around the word milk. Who the hell are you to tell me what is the name of my product and my landscape and everything we've cared about when, you know, you don't have anything invested in except to put out a little money to buy it. (laughs) It's our entire life. Then we get the lowdown on the language of cider. So the first thing that's really confusing about dryness is that it has nothing to do with how something actually feels in your mouth. And finally, we get our fill of tiki talk. You don't walk into a tiki bar like, oh yeah, this is what Polynesia is probably like. Like, it's, it's supposed to be, like, fantasy and stuff. That's the hard part. It's so easy to do tiki bad, and that's where it gets a bad name. Tune into this week's episode of Meat and 3. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And we are going to speak today with Art Cullen, the editor of the Storm Lake Times, a twice a week county seat newspaper in Northwest Iowa. Mr. Cullen won the 2017 Pulitzer Prize for editorial writing for a series on agricultural pollution of surface water. He is the author of the book Storm Lake, a chronicle of change, resilience and hope from a Heartland newspaper published by Viking in 2018. And he works with his brother, John, who is founder and publisher of The Times, his wife, Dolores, a feature writer and photographer, and son, Tom, a reporter, keeping it all in the family. I like that art. Thanks so much for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me, Katie. It's a real pleasure. Uh, your reputation precedes you, I must say. I, I uh, you know, I've, I read a f- I've read quite a few very complimentary things about you and heard complimentary things about you from other reporters. So I'm excited that you decided to agree to be on the show today. So um, we're going to talk about the, um, uh, the the Heartland Forum that took place in the beginning of April. But before we start talking about those Democratic candidates, first I want you to describe Storm Lake, um, <clears throat> Iowa, and, uh, you know, who who is your paper reaching out to? Who, who are your readers? 
Storm Lake is a town of 10 to 15,000 people in northwest Iowa, uh, and this is uh, corn, soybean, and hog country, and we have two large meat processing plants in Storm Lake mm. owned by Tyson that processes turkey and pork. And so uh, as a result, we have our we have a majority immigrant community in Storm Lake now. Oh, interesting. Uh, uh, 90% of our elementary school are children of color, uh, uh-huh. mainly from Latin America. And uh, it also happens to be in the center of of uh, congressional district, the 4th Congressional District of Iowa, which is home to Congressman Steve King, who is probably the leading immigrant basher in Washington other than Donald Trump. Yes, well, or Stephen Miller, yeah, absolutely. But you know, right. definitely high on the <clears throat> high on the list of of liberal. Um, you know, uh, well, let's put it this way: we're us liberals be putting our pins in his voodoo doll on a regular basis. <laughs> Not a fan. <laughs> so this is a, this is Storm Lake is a little dot of blue in a sea of Farm Bureau red uh, here oh, in Northwest right? Iowa, uh, and it's probably the richest corn ground in in the world. Uh, yeah. And uh, and so that's kind of where we lie. So the, the the people of the Latin American immigrants, um, you don't have a big Somali population there. That surprises me because I thought they were really manning those um, poultry and uh, hog plants. It's mostly Latin Americans who are coming up to your community. Well, there's about 30 languages or dialects spoken in Storm Lake, and no doubt there's no. Somalis here. Uh, but uh, because it's a pork plant, there aren't a lot of Muslims working there. Oh, sure, uh, right, right. And uh, they tend to work more in poultry. And, yep. uh, and so uh, there's a lot of Southeast Asians, uh, uh, people from Myanmar, uh, Samoa, uh, but about 75% are from Latin America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that would be those were, are those the folks that are coming up from like Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, the same sort of tr- northern triangle of Central America? No, primarily they started from the state of Jalisco, an agricultural state uh, whose capital is Guadalajara. And huh. uh, they were young men driven north by the North American Free Trade Agreement as we flooded Mexico with corn. Number yeah. two, yellow corn from Iowa. Uh, we put the campesinos out of business in Chiapas and Jalisco. And so they moved north to work in our meatpacking plants. And so now Tyson ships uh, pork down to Japan or to uh, Mexico for further processing, uh, where it's shipped on to Japan. Uh, it's an interesting mm-hmm. global uh, phenomenon. Uh, but yeah, uh, they the Latinos start originally. Southeast Asians came to Storm Lake from Laos. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the Thai Dom culture. We ex- we brought the Thai Dom culture in its entirety from Thailand refugee camps to primarily Storm Lake, Iowa, and Des Moines, and that mm-hmm. started about in the late 1970s. And mm-hmm. uh, so now we're, we have a Buddhist temple in Storm Lake. It's a gorgeous gold leaf temple. Wow next to uh, a ready-mix concrete plant. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it's a very interesting little cosmopolitan rural community. Yeah. Now, why do you think, given that Steve King is your uh, congressional representative, why does he keep getting real? I know we're going off track immediately. I warned you this would happen. You're just obviously <laughs> way too interesting. Um, but why, do you, why does he keep getting reelected? Aren't these people voting against him? Well, yeah, uh, Storm Lake proper votes against Steve King um, and uh, against Donald Trump. But uh, 
the uh, rest of Northwest Iowa is very heavily Republican and conservative. Oh. Abortion is a very big issue here. And really? uh, uh, Steve King, despite all his uh, remarks that are perceived as racist, uh, it, it's not really uh, fear or hatred of immigrants that's driving the vote. It's people wanting to flip the bird to New York, Washington, and California. And oh. that's really what it's about. That's so sad. That yeah, it's kind of so the Midwestern sad. phenomenon of the of the feeling resentful and flown over, and you know the manufacturing jobs have all left for Mexico. Yet Mexicans are coming to Iowa and Wisconsin, and right. it tends to make people resentful, and they vote for uh, you know these uh, xenophobic candidates. Mm-hmm. But then there's also the aspect that unions, you know, basically got busted down to nothing under the Absolutely. Reagan during the Reagan era, right? So the Americans didn't really want those meatpacking jobs anymore, right? No, that's right. I mean, uh, in 1980, uh, the high-grade meatpacking plant here closed down. It was reopened by IBP at mm-hmm. half the wages as a non-union plant. And uh, so if those union workers, what they were getting paid in 1975, they'd be making 125 grand a year today. Right. And, uh, but instead, uh, uh, the meatpackers today are making about 18 bucks an hour, which right. is, uh, you know, isn't bad money in a town like Storm Lake where rent is 500 bucks a month. Right. It's not terrible, but it's certainly not a middle yeah, class. It, yeah, it's it's the first right. step on the rung uh, to the ladder yeah. to success. And the, stu- the the kids of these immigrants are going to be in a Vista University or a local college and are graduating with, you know, teaching degrees, science degrees. And right. well, the beautiful thing is they're staying here. And so you can see the American story building here. Oh, wow. That's fabulous. It's, that's a really, it's a wonderful story you're telling there. So let's talk about the panel that you moderated. That was at the um, Heartland Forum, I think it was called. Am I getting that right? right. And right. Uh, there were about six or seven presidential hopefuls who showed up for that? We had five. We had Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, John Delaney, Tim Ryan, and Amy Klobuchar. Oh, right. And so it was a pretty okay. good mix of people, really, from, from populist to kind of moderate business uh, uh-huh. lanes. So who, what did you ask them? Well, the first thing I asked, uh, actually it was Senator Warren, was uh, what can be done now urgently to save the Midwest in particular from a uh, farm income crisis? There's Suicide rates, especially among Wisconsin dairy farmers, are at their highest yeah. level since the mid-1980s farm crisis. And so that's really the urgent question that's on the mind of, of Midwestern agriculture right now, is how are we going to get through this, this, this trade war that's depressed corn and soybean markets, and uh, how are we going to uh, uh, get a crop in this spring? And yeah. uh, and the answer was, we don't control Washington or the USDA, the Republicans do, and therefore, uh, we've got a lot of answers for you in 2020. Well, that ain't <laughs> soon enough. <laughs> well, did that mean, well, I know that one of Elizabeth Warren's uh, hobby horses is the uh, breaking up of mega agribusinesses. Yeah. Was that seen as a, as a um, you know, a positive uh, reform that your community would be interested in pursuing? Do they want that? 
the one thing that ultra-conservative Chuck Grassley and ultra-progressive Tom Harkin could agree on was uh, uh, antitrust and breaking mm-hmm. up big meat packers and big chemical companies and seed companies. Right. So I think Elizabeth Warren is on to something. And, yes. Uh, but that doesn't fix our immediate problem, which is, you know, we've been talking about breaking up the trust since Teddy Roosevelt, and yeah. uh, we're still talking about it. And so that doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't solve our immediate problem of this. We do have this highly uh, contracted ag supply chain that keeps just ringing itself for efficiency and keeps ringing yeah. out farmers out the bottom. And uh, how, do you, how do we ease the pain as we transition to some sort of new arrangement? Right. And I mean, what kind of legislation or legislative battles uh, do you face in order to make those new arrangements? I know she mentioned something about unwinding the Bayer Monsanto merger. uh, And, you know, it's a done deal. Like, I don't know how you can suddenly turn around and say, oh, sorry, oops, you know, regulations have decided that you're not allowed to do that. I don't. You know, I didn't hear a plan for that. I'm wondering if you exactly. did. Or if you, if you break up, uh, for example, Tyson and, and break, you say they're going to finish hogs here and slaughter them there. And what about right. the 3,000 families who are working here trying to build a future? Uh, do they get hit by flying debris yeah. uh, in the, right. as we blow everything up? So, yeah. uh, and I don't think Elizabeth Warren or Amy Klobuchar, either one of them are that reckless. Uh, but but right now they're at the phase of ginning up the base, and uh, that's a very mm-hmm. popular line uh, with conservative and uh, liberal rural mm-hmm. people. Is uh, nobody is in love with Monsanto or Dow Dupont? Right, absolutely. And then there was uh, actually I interviewed Leah Douglas last week, uh, who I know you know from uh, Food and Environment Reporting Network, just to get her take on it. And um, one of the things she said that was most popular in that discussion was, uh, um, you know, in the antitrust uh, part of the discussion, was the idea of um, the right to fix your own equipment, like not yeah. having to go to John Deere to get your parts and have them right. do the fixing. If you can fix it yourself, you should be able to fix it yourself. And that apparently is a big issue for farmers, among many other things. I thought that was an interesting little wrinkle that I wasn't aware of before. What other kinds of things like that were there? Were there other were there other issues of that ilk, sort of, that are kind of granular in that way that the average American probably would not be aware of, but which has a big impact on the farming community? Yes, I think there was one, and nobody picked up on it. I offered several openings, and that is we have to uh, figure out a way in an era of climate change and soil degradation. Uh, it's reaching crisis proportion, soil erosion, because of, mm-hmm. because of more extreme weather. We're seeing it right now in flooding in southwest Iowa. This just scoured thousands upon thousands of acres into sand. And uh, uh, we have to figure out the Gulf of Mexico is dying because of erosion and because of uh, over-fertilizing Illinois and Iowa cropland. And so we need to figure out a new uh, paradigm for agriculture that can can be uh, more flexible with climate change and can regenerate our soil health. And we can do it through a a little-known program in the Farm Bill called the Conservation Stewardship Program. It was actually authored by Senator Harkin, and it it, uh, rewards uh, farmers for using conservation and soil-building techniques on working lands. 
and that is bringing returning us to a rotational grazing system that involves cattle uh, on the landscape Mm -hmm. rather than in unsustainable feedlots Mm -hmm. and uh, puts Iowa back into grass and holds our soil in place so we can continue to grow corn uh, but then put grass at the margins and prevent the pollution. But nobody understands the program outside of Iowa. Huh. That's interesting. I mean, I I am quite well aware of the Conservation Stewardship Program. I'm also aware that uh, in the most recent, um, and I haven't read the most recent Farm Bill, but one of the things that I have heard uh, is being considered is, is removing funding for the Conservation Stewardship Program. Was that discussed at all? Uh, Amy Klobuchar said we need to protect a strong conservation title in the Farm Bill, and uh, and that was the only. And uh, uh, Tim Ryan from Ohio actually he 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 actually understands it pretty well. Uh, the yes. others uh, gave it lip service, and uh, they don't realize that this is the future of agriculture. That the farming in a chemical base is not sustainable, uh, right. and. Uh, there's uh, uh, plenty of research from respected sources from NASA to the University of Minnesota to Iowa State University that's telling us that our corn yields could decline in half over the next 30 to 50 years if we don't change our ways. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've interviewed Chris Jones quite a bit a couple of times from yeah, Iowa State brilliant. University. I'm sure you know him. Um, yeah. he's been He's been very much in the forefront of sort of like you know, blowing the the whistle or waving the red flag saying, you know, this just is not going to work, guys. You've got you to gotta figure something else out. Yeah, he knows the score. Do, do you think that, um, that this, you know, like this, have you had groups of Democratic hopefuls come through in the past uh, talking about these issues that are near and dear to the Iowa, you know, heart? Um, or is this is this like a new phenomenon to have people pay attention to this? I feel like agriculture is always kind of the last thing that people ever talk about um, when it comes to campaigning. Yeah, well, Jimmy Carter did, and that's why he uh, won the Iowa caucuses. Uh, and John Kerry mm-hmm. paid some attention to it. Uh, but otherwise, no. Uh, uh Bill Clinton may have, but he bypassed Iowa because Tom oh. Harkin was running for president. So, so there is, no, uh, there has been no discussion, and uh, the the uh, farm legislation has drifted toward oh. a free market approach uh, that creates a vacuum because there's never really a free market in agriculture and food production. There there never can be since the times of the Egyptians building yeah, right. granaries. <laughs> So, uh, you know, people rush in to fill that vacuum, and that, that's corporate consolidation. And uh, and so we see what we're seeing right now with the farm income crisis, uh, polluted surface water, and, uh, you know, increasing suicide rates because, because we've taken a laissez-faire approach to agriculture in our government policy. Yes. Yes, and that how many how many decades does that go back? Would you would you ascri- I love to I love to put everything at the feet of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Yeah, exactly. Who- it's called Freedom to Farm. John Block uh, was the Secretary of Agriculture under Ronald Reagan, and 
And of course, it really goes back to Earl Butts when he said yes. we need, uh, Nixon's press or uh, agriculture secretary said we need to farm fence row to fence row to feed the world. And we're still operating under the misimpression that we're feeding the world by growing number two yellow corn. What we're really doing is feeding hogs, and there's still plenty of people in Africa starving to death. Sure, absolutely. We're feeding hogs and we're feeding the ethanol industry, and that's about it. Exactly. <laughs> So so how did people how did people respond to what the democrats were saying were they enthusiastic did you feel like that might that they might that they might vote democratic in the next election or do you think it was just kind of like oh yeah you know here they are again they've got their you know they've got their talking points but nothing's ever going to change what was the response well, I have to say that most of the crowd was members of the Farmers Union, which is a progressive farm group, and so I'd have to say that they were all pretty enthusiastic about all the candidates. And surprisingly, I think they were they were very enthusiastic about John Delaney because he actually, got, you know, he did get granular on like Medicaid, which is a very hot issue in Iowa right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, since the forum, about a week later, Beto O'Rourke showed up, and he spoke to a packed house here in Storm Lake at a cafe, over 100 people there. And he expl- uh, he showed a pretty uh, impressive dis- uh, command of agriculture, climate change, and Midwestern issues. Uh, and everybody, you know, a lot of people think he, you know, he, he doesn't have that gravitas, and, and I think he really showed he, he did. And so... Candidates really are reaching out. They're learning about rural issues, and they're saying the right things. Yeah, that's nice to hear. I hope that it, you know, if we prevail, I, I do hope to see some changes. But I, I'm, I can't say that I'm, I'm hugely optimistic. So, so would you say that John Delaney or Beto O'Rourke was actually the best of the of the lot in terms of really identifying and drilling down on some of those issues and being able to speak very directly to the major concerns of Iowa farmers, or was or was like the antitrust, you know, the Elizabeth Warren message more compelling? Well, I think the antitrust message received more play, uh, but I think there was a lot of people who were listening very carefully, and, you know, they're almost professional at it in Iowa. Yeah. Joe Biden's been campaigning here since 1988. Uh, so, you know, uh, we're used to, uh, and, and they're very careful listeners, and they understand what the Trans-Pacific Partnership is all about, and that's one thing that Delaney immediately declared is the first thing I'd do is sign up for the TPP, and yeah. that's the quickest way to, to restore markets. And that might, might not be the answer for the farmers' union people uh, who are in the audience. They may have different ideas. But I think there was a lot of people who were saying, you know, here's a guy who, who does understand markets, how markets work. And I think they were also saying, you know, Elizabeth Warren is brilliant, and she's a Harvard Law professor, and she really does understand what the structural problem in markets and in production are. And, right. And uh, uh, so I, I think uh, a wide spectrum of views is out there, and it's wider than people think. It's not right. all just antitrust. And if you talk with O'Rourke, uh, you know, he takes a fairly nuanced view of things, and it's very hard to – he's not very dogmatic, similar to Bill Clinton and uh, or Obama, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so those are all interesting uh, candidates to me. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's thrilling to see. It's especially thrilling to see younger people, you know, coming into the race. That to me is like very exciting. I'm so sick of these old white guys. I just can't even, you know, present company excluded, of course. (laughs) 
Yeah, now that, you know, and Joe Biden's going to be, like I say, he's been running since 88, and he's going to be coming into the room pretty soon and sucking all the oxygen out. So it's going to be real interesting to see what happens yeah, to, to some of these really. other candidates. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break for a sponsor drop, and I mean very quick, and then we'll be right back with Art Cullen from the Storm Lake Times in uh, Storm Lake, oh, Iowa. Stay tuned, folks. We're going to talk more about presidential politics. We'll be right back. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Jimmy Carboni, and I'm the host of Beer Sessions Radio here on HRN. My show is an audio ale salon celebrating the world of craft beer, cider, food, and more. Through discussions with industry insiders and knowledgeable beer fans, my friends and I explore every aspect of the brewer's craft, from grains to pint glass and tasting to toasting. You can find Beer Sessions Radio wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, we're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're talking to Art Cullen from the Storm Lake Times. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and he was hosting uh, and moderating a panel of Democratic hopefuls at the beginning of the month of April. And so we're, um, you know, we're just talking uh, talking policy. So, Art, what do you think about um, Republican leadership? Like, do you think that you might have a similar opportunity with Republican leaders uh, coming to Iowa? Say, for example, Donald Trump took a took a swing through Iowa. What would you ask him about? Well, I don't think that Donald Trump is going to allow me the opportunity to ask him anything. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> frankly, <laughs> I, I know, but in a perfect uh, world, if you could ask him what his farm. <laughs> well, what are you going to end this damn trade war? You know, uh, that's what I would ask him. And uh, yeah. there, you know, and there's a lot of a lot of. You know, Sherrod Brown, for example, who would disagree with me, but uh, I think of, a, of an old farmer friend of mine who said that, you know, the way you build rapport with people is by trading with them. And yeah. so the more you trade with China, the better they get on human rights. And, uh, you know, it goes way back in Iowa history to when Roswell Garst, uh, the seed breeder, invited Nikita Khrushchev to Coon Rapids, Iowa, to talk mm-hmm. about ending the Cold War through through food and agriculture. Right. And, uh, you know, so... Uh, uh, the trade issues, I, I think, are, are very important, and that's what I would ask Trump is, uh, you know, uh, you, you build, you can build relations uh, in the world uh, through food, and you don't use food as a weapon. And, yes. Uh, so that's what we should be talking about. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, you know, 
we know that he doesn't care about that. What about other Republican leaders? I mean, you mentioned Chuck Grassley earlier, and I, you know, I haven't seen, even though he's from an, you know, a big ag state, he's he's not exactly been the best friend to farmers over the last, you know, I don't know how many terms he's had, but yeah. you know what I mean? It's like I don't see that he's well, so great. Uh, Grassley is a farmer himself, and uh, he does at least uh, make plaintive sounds about the Bayer Monsanto merger or the uh you know mergers in the in the or the Packers and Stockyards Act and how the Trump administration has dismantled the Packer and Stockyard administration which was the right. antitrust enforcement mechanism in the meatpacking industry and so he right. makes sounds about it but nothing again nothing ever changes yeah and uh uh but you know Grassley sort of drank the Kool-Aid in 2010 when the Tea Party came out and uh and then he, Grassley was telling people that, uh, you know, Grandma's going to uh, get cut off Medicare and uh, death panels and all that stuff. Yes, and, I remember. Uh, and he hijacked uh, the health care legislation with Max Baucus, and they took it in a dark room and and shot the public option in the head. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Art, I'm not laughing because it's funny. I'm laughing because you're funny. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's, that's a I mean, beautiful that's what way Chuck of putting Grassley it. Does. And, you know, he, he's right now he's in a lust for power, and he's Mitch McConnell's lap puppy. Yeah, and uh, did his work on the Judiciary Committee, and uh, and then he'll make sounds again about the neck about how the farmers are having a tough time, and we got to do something for him. Where's the flooding disaster aid hung up on Puerto Rico? Yeah. Where's Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst? Well, I mean, that's a scandal in and of itself. But I mean, there's yeah, the flooding in Iowa. You not you got clobbered twice, right? You got didn't you just have another bomb cyclone last week? Yeah, in Minnesota and all over. And uh, you know where where are they? Where are they voting today on disaster no. aid? No, because they don't want to help Puerto Rico. Right. Pretty much that seems to be you know brown people. Can't be giving them any money. No, yeah, sir. Yeah, so you're right. Chuck Grassley is selling farmers down the muddy Missouri. Yeah, right, right. So, um, you know, since you live in in the, one of the most, if not the most important agricultural state in the in the uh, union, what what do you see are the the greatest challenges to local farmers? I mean, is it the tariffs that it's, you know, the most recent outrage to farmers? Is it the over, overwhelming consolidation? Or is it more sort of prosaic stuff like, you know, land access or excessive regulation, which is something that a lot of farmers like to complain about? What do you... It's really all about money. It's really all about markets. And uh, and these, these tariffs need to go away. Uh, and I think most Iowans, Iowa has an export-sensitive economy. We are involved in agriculture and manufacturing, and that's it. And I think most Iowans agree that uh, that uh, free trade, you're going to get a better deal than uh, uh, with tariffs. And I think that that's the immediate problem. Right. And and th- and then we need to move on to to all the other issues like transparency and markets mm-hmm. and uh, you know concentration and overproduction by conglomerates that are by design, driving independent dairy producers out of business. They did it in the hog industry in 1998. Right. They intentionally drove hog prices down to $0.08, cents to, and the farmers were shooting their hogs and burying them in the field, 40 to the acre, 
rather than turn them over to, to the market, which was corrupt and being manipulated by these pork integrators. Yes. And now there are no independent pork producers left. They, were, they, too, were assassinated in 1998. And that's exactly what they're doing to the dairy industry now. Yes, it is. Yep. I did a quite a long series on that. But I, I am interested by the the pork situation because... Um, you know there are far, there are guys that are still willing to go under the yoke of one of those integrators. Uh, you know I find that fascinating. I guess if you want to raise hogs, you want to raise hogs, and if you don't work with the big integrators, you kind of can't do your job. Yeah, and it's a steady source of income for young people who can't get into agriculture, but they can put up this building and it'll give them. You know they they can make, just make a living on it. They know how much the integrators know how much they can pay to keep a guy, uh, so he'll build another building. And but they give right. you just enough. Right, just enough and not more. And then if they piss you off, well, too bad. You can't. You're not getting another contract. I mean, right. it is pretty, it's, it's, I mean, the whole integration, that whole model, I think is so deeply suspect and corrupt that, you know, right there is, is a major challenge for somebody to clean up uh, that aspect of, of agriculture. But um, so, so to, to give a little history lesson, what are the biggest changes you've observed in your state over the past few decades? And, you know, what, what can people uh, hope to see as a lesson from that? Like, is it is it just about the consolidation or, you know, what? where do we start unraveling some of that, some of that uh, so-called progress um, that isn't so progressive? Yeah, well, I think one of the changes we're seeing that's really hopeful is that despite the fact that, uh, you know, Iowa's state government is essentially owned by the Koch brothers and, and the seed and chemical companies, yeah. Uh, farmers themselves are seeking alternatives after losing money five, six straight years, and they're yeah. looking for ways to reduce chemicals and to reduce seed costs and uh, to make money. And they're finding that outfits like the Practical Farmers of Iowa, Sustainable Ag Group, that those guys are all showing up to their field days in new pickups. And uh, the guys that are doing rotational grazing and saving soil and raising locally uh, sourced beef. And uh, those guys are making money. And the guys that are farming 3,000 acres of corn and soybeans are losing losing their uh, money every year. And so those guys actually are interested in, in what the practical farmers of Iowa are doing because they're seeing it show up in the profit and loss statements. Yes. So I think that's they're way ahead of the political class. And although right. it's very small, it's growing at a very rapid pace, and especially around urban areas where they can, uh, where local food economies are starting to develop. Right, right, yeah, and you can sell into restaurants and institutions more easily. Right. So, do you have infrastructure in place with these guys? I mean, are they building their own infrastructure? Because I mean, I know one of the biggest problems for people who want to produce independently, certainly in the animal agriculture sector, is that there's no processing facility available. So is that, are you starting to see uh, investment, capital investment in that kind of infrastructure or, uh, you know, aggregation and production warehouses where people can, you know, create a food hub and farmers can drop off all their stuff and get it packed and sent out? Right. I, that, that will come, but first the cattle need to come back. And there's got to be a way to incent those cattle to come back, and that's that's when we get back to discussing the farm bill again and the conservation mm-hmm. stewardship program and allowing p- 
people to graze on CRP acres and the like. Uh-huh. And uh, uh, when we get to that conversation, then we can begin to talk about uh, you know rejuvenating rural communities with local processing facilities manned by immigrants if necessary because nobody else wants to live in North Dakota or South Dakota. So, uh, <laughs> you know, let's get real. Yeah, I'm afraid I wouldn't go there. I mean, I like living in the country, but, you know, I, I can't handle those weather that weather. In General Mills now, you know, one of the big agribusiness giants is, is encouraging now uh, regenerative agriculture because consumers are demanding uh, that we don't use BT corn uh, and genetically modified corn and oats in their uh, in their cornflakes and oatmeal, mm-hmm. and so now General Mills is is asking farmers in North Dakota, and they're investing in these in these farmers in North Dakota and South Dakota to grow organic or regenerative non-GMO crops for their human food consumption. So mm-hmm. there are hopeful signs. Yeah, right. Absolutely. What about pot? Is Iowa anywhere near uh, legalizing pot? No, I think Iowa will be the last state in the country that legalizes <laughs> marijuana. Now that's too and, bad. Uh, right up with Nebraska. Uh, yeah. And we didn't have liquor by the drink in Iowa until 1965, and it took an alcoholic governor, a recovering alcoholic governor, to do it. <laughs> yeah, he was sober when he did it, and uh, he had the moral credibility. Yeah, right, right. That's hilarious. It's too bad because, you know, Kentucky is going to start growing hemp. Okay, it's not pot. But, I mean, hemp is also another crop that's, like, very hardy, very useful, very versatile, good for the soil, retains carbon. And it actually is, uh, it it has a higher ethanol value than, and uh, and it builds soil. It's got a higher ethanol value than corn. Yeah, yeah. And Iowa used to be, during World War II, in fact, Storm Lake was a major hemp production center for the production of rope on ships and the like. Right, uh, right. Uh, and, and that's why you can't grow good marijuana in Iowa is because there's too much hemp here. So when you had Tom Vilsack as the head of the USDA, because he was governor of Iowa before that, right? Yes, he was. Yeah, and so then he became the head of the USDA, stayed eight years of the Obama administration. Did you feel like he made better farm policy uh, for your constituency, or did you feel that his uh, you know, tenure was just more business as usual? I mean, for example, he watched the dairy industry go belly up and didn't seem to do lift a finger about that. So what, did, what was your sense of him as, a, as an advocate for, an Iowa, for the Iowa farmer? I think... I think uh... In terms of advancing the ball on sustainable agriculture and, uh, and all the things we've been discussing, he was a sort of a caretaker, secretary of agriculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he's somewhat of a visionary on building rural communities, and I think that right. uh, he hasn't received recognition for that. Oh, no and, kidding. Interesting. And trying to develop rural housing and uh, and all the myriad things that USDA does, we tend to concentrate on the farm program. Um, and uh, you know, he tried to he he did get the conservation stewardship program in place, but it was you know it was being fought so hard uh, by the corporate interests. He was in a difficult position, and the USDA, you know, is obviously is uh, heavily. Uh, Heavily influenced, you know, by corporate food companies. Uh, Understood. I should yeah. say pressured, not influenced, but pressured constantly. And yeah. so 
he stood up against that, I think. But he, you know, did he advance the ball on sustainable ag and uh, and uh, a vision beyond corn ethanol? I'm not sure. Right. Despite the Know Your Farmer, Know Your Food campaign, it didn't really seem to penetrate the heartland, in my observation. Um, it was, you know, great in sort of urban areas and, and uh, great on the coasts, I think. And But we certainly didn't go warm. backward, as we are under Sonny Purdue, where we're cutting these right. conservation programs and trying to divorce food stamps from uh, the farm bill, for example. Yes. Uh, and Vilsack fought off all that stuff. And so I think he does deserve some credit for that. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, the Obama administration wasn't exactly, uh, it was, uh, you know, he campaigned as a populist and governed as a corporatist. So, Yes, quite a bit. Even though I still love him, I love him great. too. Yeah, I do. I, yeah. I, and uh, for a lot of reasons. So you're saying so, Sonny Purdue, our current uh, USDA secretary um, or secretary of agriculture, excuse me. He uh, he he doesn't seem to be doing anything that I. I mean, I don't hear anything about policies that he's advancing. Nor do I. Well, uh, I guess they did get a new poultry center in Georgia. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> yeah, taking care of the home crowd. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> but right. yeah, I mean, aside from that, I'm really not getting the sense that he has a vision for American agriculture or any sense that there's value in addressing, um, you know, the the challenges of climate change. Um, he doesn't seem to be aware that that's happening. Did you expect one? I'm sorry. Did you expect a vision uh, from a Trump agriculture secretary? How could we expect a vision from any of them? Well, no, I didn't. But I, you know, <laughs> you know, in, a, in the real world, yes, I would have. Um, but <laughs> since we dwell in, in something, you know, some further circle of hell uh, at the moment. <laughs> some you know, other course, world, yes. It's, it's not realistic, of course, to expect anything, any kind of policy from any of these clowns, uh, aside from the policy of lining their pockets. Right. No, but you're right, Sonny Perdue. Uh, what has he done? I don't know. We got a farm bill done several months late, uh, yeah. and it's it's lame. Uh, and it, like I say, it, it undermines the most important programs in the farm bill. Right. Um, and... Uh, so no, he's he's he has no accomplishment that I could cite. And again, I'm asking, where's the money, Sonny? Uh, right. You know, we 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 have these floods, and there's no money. Where is the right. Trump administration in forwarding the disaster money to the Midwest? That's right. That's right. Because I mean, really, I don't know if people are aware of the fact, but most crops are be are should normally be getting planted right around now am i right i mean isn't it sort of the last couple of weeks of april beginning of may that you start putting your crops in yeah within the next week or two and there's still farmers trying to negotiate loans yeah so that's that's pretty alarming if they're not going to be able to do that and then i was asking chris jones again i'm going to all go off on a little tangent here but then i'm going to reel it back and we'll talk about your book um the uh, the one of the things that I was asking Chris Jones is how much does the flooding affect the soil composition of these fields? Like, you know, does it make it harder, worse? Will the stuff not grow? I mean, like, what are the implications of the flooding? Once the waters recede, what are people supposed to do? They've got a field full of mud. You know, I don't know how you yeah. plant a crop in that. 
Right. Uh, actually, I was just uh, heard the state climatologist say uh, that uh, there's tens of thousands of acres in southwest Iowa uh, that were flooded out and again scoured down to sand that won't Oof. be able to support vegetative life for ten years. These were cornfields. And, oh my gosh. Uh, uh, we're losing soil four to ten times faster than we can regenerate soil in Iowa. And it's a relatively flat state, as we all know. Right. And uh, so it's not like it's running down the hills. It is, uh, we're, it's just wind and water are driving it in sheets to the Mississippi River, where it's dumping yep. into the Gulf of Mexico and creating this huge dead zone. Right, and, right. And uh, so... Uh, yes, it is depleting soil, and and to the point where, and this is happening worldwide, where Chinese wheat production now is falling five percent a year because of soil degradation. Mm. Think about that. Wow. I'm thinking. I'm thinking. These are big numbers. You're going to come back, and we're going to talk about uh, soil and water and water pollution. Um, because I, I'd love to actually, if you could send me all of the articles that you wrote about that, so I can have a good long read up. I'd be grateful yeah. to you. But let's let's take this moment now to promote you shamelessly. Talk sure. about your book, because it just basically came out not even a year ago, right? Uh, last and, October, And, uh, yeah. you know, tell people what to expect from reading it and where they can get it and how they can learn more. Yeah, it's called Storm Lake, A Chronicle of Change, Resilience, and Hope from a Heartland newspaper. And it's published by Viking, which is an imprint of Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. And you can order it from all the online bookstores, but I prefer the order it from an independent bookstore if you if you have one nearby, if there's one left. <laughs> and, yeah, right. Uh, and uh, it's about uh, it's I call it a cultural history wrapped in a memoir uh, about how you know a small town newspaper guy won a Pulitzer Prize uh, talking about agriculture and the environment and immigration. And how it's all connected, and yeah. uh, and so I tell stories about my youth in Storm Lake, uh, about the history of the glaciers, uh, about how we drove indigenous people off the land, broke the land, and began its destruction with the yeah. plow, and uh, and how it takes us to today to this highly integrated extractive system that mines the soil and replaces it with petrochemicals and uh, and then how we flush it all down our river systems every spring and fall That's and right. but how we know the solution and it, and it again starts with the indigenous people that we found here in the first place who moved with the landscape and who lived on the landscape and of it and didn't seek to dominate it and uh, that there's a lot of lessons there for us. We know how to do it. We know how to survive and be resilient if we choose to be. And that's really what the thrust of the book is, that rural communities can be resilient if they welcome new people and new ways of thinking and new ways of growing food, and uh, that we can can reverse this decades-long decline of rural depopulation, and we can turn it around into into communities like Storm Lake that are now building themselves organically uh, through uh, families who want to be together. Uh Uh-huh. Sounds great. All right, I'm going to order a copy, and I'm going to send you a copy of my book. How about that? Excellent. Um, (laughs) What's the name of it? Give yourself a plug. 
my my book is called What's the Matter with Meat, and um, I it also published published in 2017, and it's uh, it's an examination of uh, global the global animal agricultural industry, and I target five major production centers, including obviously the United States, uh, Brazil, right. the EU, uh, China, and um, well, I forget what the other one is. Oh, Australia, obviously. Um, so yeah, I'll send you a copy. I think you'll find it quite interesting. It's great. you know written Thank like you. a long press release. I'm not a great writer, but I, I definitely knew my facts. <laughs> I can't remember yeah. now, but I Thank knew them then. <laughs> Anyway, Art, all right. thank you very much for this. Send me your send me that series on water pollution, and we'll we'll pick uh, we'll pick this up in a few weeks and talk again about that series. Art, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks to my sponsor and to my excellent engineer Matt. We'll see you next week, folks. We'll talk more about what's going on in our agricultural communities and our food industry uh, as we go forward through this year. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Bye bye for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.